If you're a visitor among us and you've just joined us this morning, we are studying through the book of Revelation and um, if you haven't been much to church before, you might find this a little weird because some of the pictures presented sound strange to our ears today. But I'd ask you just to track with me and I'll try and explain what I'm doing so that God's word becomes clear to us because the Holy Spirit will explain through the word because God's given it to us. This is his revealed word to us and so we must study it as he's given to us. And so I just pray for you today. Let's just come before our God and ask him to open our hearts. Lord, once again as we open your word before us, we know that it's a living word, although it's contained on pages. But you make it alive in us. Your spirit takes mere words and you blow life into them. And that life reaches our souls and we are changed. But Lord, we plead with you this morning. May we push aside all those preconceived ideas we have about your word. May we unleash the lion of your word into our hearts. May we have soft hearts before you. And may you speak mightily to us. And especially as we look at this passage this morning, describing your son, the darling of heaven, the one who you sent to this earth to make a way for us to be in a living relationship with you, our God. Fill our eyes with the vision of Jesus Christ. And if you do, we will be changed. We plead with you, our God. Amen. Let's read God's Word together. We're in Revelation chapter 5. So we're slowly making our way through the book. Um, and it's been quite a journey. I love that passage that Michael did last week. Um, Chapter 4 and 5, they're kind of at the real, at the core of our faith. Because if these two chapters weren't in there and the victory of these two chapters weren't there, the rest wouldn't make sense. And so they're amazing two chapters to be in. Chapters 4 and 5. But we're just going to be reading chapter 5 and we'll read the whole chapter this morning. Then I, that is John, saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures And among the elders I saw a lamb standing, 
as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen! And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a glorious chapter. I think we should end it right there. It says it. Anyway, I wonder about you when you consider the church worldwide and even the church in New Zealand and you consider what it looks like. Does it feel as if you're part of a victorious organisation? Yes? Mostly? Some? Thank you, Peter. Sometimes? That's honest. Anyone else? When you see church buildings for sale, you feel part of a victorious organisation called the church? Thank you, Colin. Maybe if you examine your own life, do you feel that you're always victorious? Or do you sometimes feel a little deflated and defeated? Yes? Not just me? You see, from an earthly perspective, and we've been examining the seven churches, from an earthly perspective, they all appear jaundiced and maybe a little struggling. All of them. Some were smaller than others, even though they were walking well, but they were small. And so in John's times, they've asked the same question. Are we making it? Are we going forward? And as you struggle with your own faith sometimes, you might ask that same question I have. Am I making progress? Is this for real? You see what John does here in this passage is he invites us, all of us who have now read this passage, right into the throne room of heaven. Why? so that we'd see the larger perspective. So that we would see God in control. As Michael said last week, in the control tower. He can see what's happening over time. He knows. He is controlling what is happening. He is sovereign. And we are invited into the throne room 
to be witnesses there with John of what he saw. We're there to see the core of our faith and what it looks like. So that we and believers in John's time would be inspired to persevere despite the difficult situations on earth, despite the seeming hopelessness which seems to characterize the church of God. So let's go with John into the throne room. Let's see what it looks like. And I pray that in your spirit you would go with me into that throne room. That as you read these descriptions, they would become pictures that become alive in your soul so that your soul can be encouraged. Let's see what God does. We read verse 1 to 4. Then John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So remember last week we saw God sitting on his throne. We saw the cherubim around him. We saw the 24 elders worshipping the Lord. And now the camera zeroes in on one specific thing. And I saw, he says, in the right hand, you can imagine that camera angle now, in the right hand of God the Father, there's the scroll in his open hand. And what is that saying? It's his executive hand of, this is going to happen. Let it now happen. It's in his open hand. And the invitation is there, who will take the scroll? Let's look at the scroll first. What is this all about? You see, as we saw in chapter 4, we saw God in His majestic and His awesome might and splendor sitting on the throne with lightning and peals of thunder and cherubim around Him and and worshipping God continuously just because He's God. And the 24 elders who represent God's people, and I'll just stop here quickly, they represent God's people, 24 elders, the number 12 in Revelation is a holy number, also representing perfection, completeness. They are 12 and 12 elders, the tribes of Israel brought together, God's people all brought together in completeness. Not one will be left behind and these representatives of God's people are before his throne, the elders. And in their right hands are the prayers of the saints, the golden bowls of the temple representing worship before the Lord. And the prayers of the saints going up to God. These are prayers of praise going up to God before His throne. Alright, you got that picture? And so now, that's not where the story ends. There's the scroll in the hand of God. And what is the scroll all about? It's the plan of God going out from His throne, from the majesty of His throne into the whole world. God's purposes happening and being made to happen. Where do we get all that from? Well, we get it from the Old Testament because when, as soon as we hear the word scroll and if you were Jewish and living in John's time, you would know what the scroll represented. It was representing God's purposes shown to Daniel. They knew the Old Testament better. Daniel chapter 12. God, through the whole book of Daniel, gave Daniel these visions. And what were the visions speaking about? The visions were speaking about the last days. They were speaking about judgment of God. They were speaking about His salvation, His saving of people. They were speaking about His establishing His kingdom. And then we hear these words in Daniel chapter 12 verse 4. God says to Daniel, Close up and seal the words of the scroll. So in other words, what he'd been speaking about. 
close them up, seal up the words of the scroll until the end of time. So, so that, is, that explains what the scroll is all about. It's God's purposes contained for us. And therefore the scroll is the fulfilment of God's plan of redemption and also His judgment on mankind for not listening to Him and not making Him their God. And you'll notice if you look at the description of the scroll that it's written completely on it, on the front and on the back. What does that mean? It's fully, there's not a little space left. God has put His plan there in all its details. His plans are complete. That's what that symbolizes. And so here is the complete plan of God for mankind, lying in His open hand, in His right hand, His executive hand of power, and it's sealed with seven seals. We're going to get to the seals next time. But these seals mean this, this scroll is closed until someone with the authority to open the scroll will break those seals and then execute what is in them. That is how seals worked on those days. A king would set up a parchment document with his orders on it and he would seal it with his own seal and then it would be handed on by many messengers sometimes to someone who had executive power who could break that seal. They were allowed to break that seal. No one else could break it. And then they would read what the instructions were and execute them. And the same here. God holds in his right hand his scroll with the plans for mankind and the seven seals. And then the strong angel, verse 2, with a strong voice. Notice he's a strong angel with a strong voice. Why couldn't he open the seal? Because he's not the appointed one, even though he's strong. There is someone else who is much stronger. And so the strong angel sent by God says in a loud voice, Who is there who can open the scroll? Who is there who is worthy to open the scroll? And the call, which is not just a call, but actually a statement of fact, goes out into the heavens. Who is there who is worthy to open the scroll? It's a statement, even though it's a question. Because heaven is silent. The Apostle Paul doesn't answer. Moses doesn't answer. The prophet Elijah, who is mighty in his works, he doesn't answer. There is no one. There is silence in heaven. Because everyone is straining to hear, is there someone who is worthy to open the scroll? And when John sees that there's no one to open the scroll, what does he do? He's only a human, remember? He bursts out into uncontrollable weeping. Is our fight for the Lord? Is it all in vain? Our churches are being persecuted. Is it all in vain? There's no one to open the scroll. Is there no one who is worthy to open the scroll? Is all our suffering and our persecution to no avail? Do you see the dramatic moment here? And then praise the Lord for verse 5. Look at this. No one on earth or in heaven or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Who are the elders? I've explained that already. Those 
who are representing mankind before the Lord, one of them comes and says, John, don't weep. There is one who can open the scroll. The line of Judah, the root of David, he is worthy to open the scroll. There is an answer. It's not all lost, John. Open your eyes and you will see the redemption. And so, what is this all about? Well, we need to know, and any Jew who had studied the Torah their whole lives long would know, the line of Judah, the reference was what? To who? Yes? To who? To Messiah, yes, but before that, it was a reference to something that happened in history. We need to turn to Genesis 49, because we obviously don't know, so let's look. Genesis chapter 49, and I've got to stick it here, so I'll be quite quick. You just hurry up and get with me. Genesis chapter 49. What is this all about? Who is this line of Judah? Well, let's read a few verses together. Genesis 49, and we're reading verses 8 to 11. There's always an answer in Scripture for everything as stated. Here it is. Who is the line of Judah? We first need to know who's speaking. Who's speaking? Jacob, the old patriarch of Israel, is speaking. And he is making a prophetic announcement about his son, Judah, who then becomes a picture of the Messiah. And so you were right. But Jacob is speaking about Judah, his son, who would be this lion, who is a projected picture of the Messiah who would come. So let's look at this. Verse 8 of chapter 49 of Genesis. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Look at the picture. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who, dare, who dares rouse him? Now look at verse 10 and 11. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Look at this. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Can you see the picture? And so Jacob is making this prophetic announcement about his son Judah. And as soon as John's hearers heard this phrase, the line of Judah, they knew. He was speaking about the Messiah. The one who would come and conquer. The one who would take the full wrath of God on him for people. The one who would take on him the wrath of God to the uttermost, Jesus, the Messiah. The one who would prove himself to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. But that's not all. He speaks about the roots of David. So what's that all about? Well, that's another prophecy. And we find this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. And I'd like you to turn there as well. We've got to look at these two prophecies. Because these passages refer to them. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 to 5. Listen to what it says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, who was Jesse? Yes, anyone? David's father. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots 
shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. What man can do that? Only God can do that. So it must be speaking of someone greater. And with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. What man can do that? Only God can. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And now go to verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, you get the picture? A representative. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Who's it speaking about? The Messiah to come. And so there we have those terms clarified for us non-Jews, not living in John's time, saying to us, this one being spoken of here, the line of Judah, the root of David, is the Messiah. That's the one being spoken of. And he is the one who will bear the, the sin of us human beings on him. He will conquer sin on the cross. That great obstacle of sin will be removed by the Messiah. The victory over sin, Satan and death will be won by the Messiah. And it has been achieved. This is the one who will open the scroll. And so this risen, reigning Lord Jesus is the only one with the authority and the power to execute God's plans of salvation and judgment. And so He is the one who will step forward. And so now there's momentous pause in heaven. And you need to really get this picture now. This elder says to him, the line of Judah will take the throne, will take the scroll. And so John looks to see the lion. And what does he see? Does he see a lion? He sees this lamb. And that's the whole point of this passage because this lamb is as if slain lamb. It's a lamb that looks half dead. It's covered in blood. And there's this lamb standing before the throne. I was expecting a lion, but there's this lamb. There's this juxtaposition of power and helplessness. Seemingly helpless lamb. But then we look a little bit closer at this lamb and what do we see? This lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Let's look at this lamb because we must investigate. What do we see in this lamb? He's, he's a lamb described as if slain. And any good Jew would know when they heard that phrase, as if slain, immediately association, the Passover. Exodus chapter 12. Who is this lamb? Was the lamb who was slain for us as a representative of us to take our sins away so that God would not kill us in that day when the angel came on the nation. And any household that didn't have the lamb's blood painted on the door lintels, the firstborn in that family would die because the lamb was not representing them. And so they would know this is the Lamb of the Passover that's standing here before God's throne. He's our substitutionary Lamb. If I can use a bigger word. The Lamb who died in the place of us. But that's not all. There's more here to this Lamb. We see it's also a reference to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1 to 12. And I'm going to just read it 
a little section for you of there. I think I've put the reference up there for you. Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 12. I'm just going to read 4, 5 and 7. Verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. And then verse... Where was I now? Verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So He opened not His mouth. This is the lamb that stands there before the throne. And so He's not just the substitutionary, the in the place of lamb. He's also the atonement lamb. Sin has been paid for. Do you get the difference? He's in our place, but our sin has also been paid for. He has paid the ransom price. This is the Lamb standing there. And that's not all. John chapter 1 verse 29. John the Baptist made a prophecy. And he said, as soon as he saw Jesus Christ approaching, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So who else is this Lamb? He is the prophesied about lamb. And so Jesus fulfills that prophecy. And what else? This description of the lamb says he has seven horns. And immediately when you read the word horn in Revelation, you need to know power. Horn equals power. He has seven horns. What do you know about the word number seven? Perfect. He has perfect power. There is no one more mighty than him. But that's not all. He has seven eyes. He's the all-seeing one. We already saw that in the book, in the letters to the churches. He's the all-seeing one. The Holy Spirit who goes out into all the world is with him too. He sees everything. And so we here have this lamb who's all-powerful. He's all-seeing. So this is no ordinary run-of-the-mill little lamb standing there. Do you get the picture? And that's not all. Look where he's standing. He's standing between the throne and the 24 elders, between God and humans. Isn't that an amazing thing? And he's standing, the resurrected lamb, he's not lying there dead in a heap. He's standing before God, four people. He's the resurrected lamb. He is the perfect go-between. He is God himself. What better one to take the scroll as he steps forward to God the Father and takes the scroll from him. God takes the scroll from God. Are God's purposes going to be fulfilled? If God fulfills the purposes, of course they are. What better hands could we be in? The hands of the Lamb, the slain Lamb. And no wonder we have verses 8 to 14. There's heavenly jubilation. You see, just think of that moment now. I'm going to step back a little bit. John hears his words. Who will, who will step forward and take the scroll? And he bursts out into, into, into sobbing. And then the elders say to him, A lion will. And there's silence in heaven. And you could have heard a pin drop if they had pins in heaven. I don't think they would have, but they might. You can hear silence in heaven and then this lamb steps forward and takes a scroll 
And suddenly, all the heavens erupt in exaltation. Can you picture that moment? Do you ever see gladiator? That moment when the gladiator steps forward victorious. And then there's that, that moment when the emperor is either going to condemn him to death or to life. And always there's silence in all the movies I've seen. I've never have been in an arena. And then the emperor makes a sign. You may live. Well, it's this poignant moment when there's silence in heaven and then, in such contrast, heaven breaks loose into jubilation. And we have three groups described to us here who praise God. Firstly, the four living creatures and the 24 elders who are around God's throne. The four living creatures, the cherubim around God's throne. The 24 elders, those representing us the people of God, in completeness before God, with our prayers of praise before the throne, they all burst out into worship. And who are they worshipping? Please note here, are they worshipping God on the throne? Yes, they are, but their worship is firstly directed here to this Lamb, who is God. And so, they are worshipping Him. And so not only is God the Father being worshipped as Creator, we saw that last week, but the slain lamb as Redeemer is being worshipped here by these living creatures. And He shares in everything that belongs to the Lord God. They are God. And so all worship goes to Him. Let's look a little at the song. They sing a new song. There are going to be many new songs that we're going to learn in heaven. Do you look forward to that? And I, they're not going to have projectors and stuff. We somehow are going to know the songs. God's going to teach them to us. But they learn a new song. Why? Why a new song? Why don't they take, crown him with many crowns? Why don't they take an old one like that? I don't know. God knows. He gave them a new song. But there is a reason. Because never before had there been such a saviour. And when he is revealed, they get a new song to worship him to. This is a unique saviour, this lamb. He is one who will never be one like him again. And they sing this new song in praise of God. And what do the words contain? Look at the words. Let's, let's look at the words of the song because they reveal so much to us about what God has done. They say this, verse 9, Worthy are you, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So what is the song saying? You, the all-powerful one, the one who sees everything, you, our God, you are the one worthy to take the scroll. And you have the authority to open the seals and to execute what God has put in them. Why? Because, here's the reason, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people, you freed them and paid the ransom price for God. They ransomed from sin, they ransomed for God. There's a purpose in our salvation, do you see that? We, don't, we aren't just saved and that's it. There's a purpose in it. We are, we are ransomed for God. And how did He do this? He did this now watch this little word, from. He didn't save all the tribes, all languages, all people, all nations. It's not what it says. It says he ransomed people for God from every tribe, from every language group, from every people group,
from every nation group. In other words, there's nothing left out here. God saves people from those groups. What is he talking about? Does God save every single person? Scripture nowhere teaches that. Does he have the power to save every single person? Yes, he does. But does every single person come to him? No. There's two reasons for that. One, and here I come to that word election again. Some people see it as a bad word. It's not. It's a glorious mystery that God chooses to save. And yet, he also says to us in his word, if you come to me and you cry out to me, I will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans chapter 10. That's the glorious truth. And this is the Lamb that they are worshipping. And what has He done? He's not just saved people from every nation and tribe and language and people, but He has given them a purpose. He has made them a kingdom. What's He talking about? When a Jew heard this, they knew exactly why. Because once they were not a people, says Hebrews, and then He made them a people of God. They are a nation. Once we were lost sinners, and we were going to hell, but then God saved us, and He made us part of a kingdom. And who does the kingdom belong to? It belongs to Him. He is the one in charge of this kingdom. It is His. And not just that, He has made us priests to serve God. What is that all about? He has made us holy. Set apart to serve God. We are His. Freed for His service. And that's not all. This is like a long sales talk. It's not all. There's more. There's more in this glorious truth. We are there, we are saved so that we can reign on earth. What does that mean? We're going to come to this later, so I'll just summarise. We will reign with Christ. See these 24 elders around the throne? They are seated on thrones. They are reigning with and through Christ. We will somehow be seated on thrones and rule with and through Christ. We'll come to that later. But here's the glorious truth. We have been saved for a purpose. And who is responsible? This lamb. The lion. The, the, the lamb standing before God. And so no wonder these angelic beings break out into song. And the angels joy them. And now you need to just picture this. Because John is trying to put into mere human words this amazing picture he sees. And what does he see? He sees joining these, these beings the cherubim and the 24 elders, the angels of heaven. And he says there are myriads and myriads of him and thousands on thousands. In other words, I don't know how to explain it. It's innumerable. Imagine the volume of sound. I'm a musician. I love music. And ask my wife, I always turn the music up real loud. We always have this volume button battle. But imagine the sound coming from heaven. Just overwhelming sound as these myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels worship God and break out into song. And then it doesn't end there. They put on the boosters. Why? Because now every created thing in all the universe joins in the song. Oh! And what are they singing? To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might and power forever and ever. 
honour, glory, blessing, just those words are coming back at the throne of God. I get goose flesh just reading those words. I long to be there among that crowd one day. Don't you? What a beautiful picture. When we get depressed and down in life, we need to remind ourselves of these things. And we need to see this beautiful picture again. God on His throne in control. The all-powerful and the all-seeing Lamb reigning. And therefore, we, we don't need to fear times of tribulation. And John's readers would have heard this. You don't need to fear persecution. You don't need to fear anguish. Trust the Almighty, powerful, all-seeing God. The picture will be there in the end. We will come through. We will be part of this majestic crowd before the, before the throne. And so let the trials come. And they do come. And we'll see that next time, not today. But how do we respond to this passage? And I want to ask you four questions this morning and then we're through. First question is this one. And this is a genuine question. I'm asking, I'm not just telling. Why is God worthy of worship? We've just seen this passage, right? What tells us that God is worthy of worship in this passage? Anyone? I don't, that's the silence in heaven. We don't want that bit now. <laughs> what in this passage tells us that God is worthy of worship? Sorry? Yes, he conquered death. There's the slain Lamb of God standing before the throne. What else? Sorry? Yes, everybody there is worshipping the God. Is worshipping God. What else? We. I don't want to answer that now. My question is, why are we worshipping God? <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> because He saves. Anything else? There's so much there. Clear. Because He's holy. He's sitting there on His throne. Yes? He's awesome. He's majestic. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Do we need any more reasons to worship our God? We just need to get a big picture. Picture of God. Because so often in life, when the storms of life start coming on us, our picture of God narrows. And all we see is the big picture of life. He is the omnipotent, the omniscient, the all-knowing, the one with a perfect love who provided the slain lamb. He is in control. Second question I want to ask you is this. If that's true, then do we live as if God is in control? I can answer only for myself. Then why do we allow ourselves to be overcome by circumstances? If God is in control on His throne, if the Lamb is the, powerful to ex- is the one who is powerful to execute God's plan, if He is God and He is, then why fear? Tell my soul the greatness of the Lord, says an old hymn. 
When we get into those situations, I need to tell my soul that God is great because my soul, through my eyes, are going to see the circumstances and my soul is going to start doing this. Have you been in situations like that in life? I have. I need to tell my soul that God is great. I need to take myself to that throne room. And if it means finding a Bible and opening these chapters and reading them in the middle of everything I'm going through, I must do that. I must tell my soul, God is great. He is on the throne. His slain lamb will make everything happen that he says he will. This lion is also, this lamb is also a lion. All is not lost. The Lamb has taken up a scroll. God's purposes are being worked out, yes, even in my situation. Thirdly, what stops us from worshipping God in this way? There's only one thing. What would that be? Sin in us. That's the only thing. How does my sin influence my worship? Of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 24 and 25 says that sin causes men to exchange the truth of God for a lie. When you have sin in your life and it clouds your soul, you won't see God as clearly as you should. And you will start to believe a lie and it will replace the truth of who God really is. And before you know it, you will not be worshipping God, but your sin will cause you to worship who? You. And things that you want. And so therefore, we've got to deal with the sin. And how do we deal with the sin? We come and bow before the slain lamb who is standing before the throne. And we ask him to forgive us. And he's the all-powerful one. We've just learnt that this morning. And he has paid the ransom. And he has died in our place. And so he can take away that sin. And once again, he can make us holy before God. Fit for purpose before God. Come before the throne. And ask the Lamb to make you pure once again. And once again, your soul will worship God in spirit and in truth. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? And so lastly, in this, in this account we've read this morning, who's the real hero? The real hero of this account and in Christian history is a lion who is a slain lamb. Don't ever separate the one from the other. He's almighty, but he's a slain lamb too. He's a sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And isn't this so different from man's ideas of power? I don't want to mention any president's name publicly here, but we sometimes have such different ideas of power. God's idea of power is a slain lamb. The opposite of what human beings see. I would have had a roaring lion there with fighting angels. God has that lion too, but in the shape of a lamb. And so the words from Isaiah chapter 55 verse 89 ring so true and John prayed them in the prayer meeting this morning. Thanks John. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. 
And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so whatever trials come on your way and on my way, let's trust in this living, all-powerful, all-knowing God who knows so much more than we do. Let's trust Him. Let's entrust our lives to Him. He wins in the end. He is victorious. Amen. Lord our God, forgive us for so quickly losing that big picture of who you really are and being so quickly overwhelmed by what happens to us in our puny human lives. And when these troubles that come upon us and those unanswered questions, when they start to overwhelm us, Lord, forgive us for not seeing that You are a lion and a mighty lamb who is slain and yet victorious. Give us a big picture of You again. Help us to not be so quickly overcome but to trust in the living God, the one who is right there through the living Spirit, who is in our situation, with the Son and with the Father, the Trinity, at work on our behalf. And you will make it happen. And somehow you will bring us through these circumstances. And if it means that the circumstances kill us, praise be God, when we open our eyes in renewed life, you are right there. You remain the unchanging God and you will bring us through into eternity. And one day, if we are saved, we will stand before your throne and then we will fall flat on our faces and we will from that lowly position sing your praises with the angels and with the angelic beings and with the whole universe praising our God. Lord, you will do it. Help us in our moments of need. In our weakness, you remain strong. Amen.